Hello and welcome back. My name is Sergio, and I am the handler for Mayday's Delta Green campaign, Doomed to Repeat. With me again is my friend and the handler for Black Project Gaming, Vince. What's going on, buddy? Hey, man. Hey, good to be here. Glad to have you tuning in, everybody. Uh, if this is your first time on our channel, welcome to you. Uh, we're a part of Mayday Roleplay. We play tabletop role-playing games like Delta Green, Vampire the Masquerade, uh, the 5th edition specifically, Orpheus, and a whole lot more. Uh, a lot of great one-shots, a lot of great mini-campaigns and even more stuff coming at you in the very near future. Uh, something for everyone. All of it available in, in podcast or video format on YouTube and completely free. So please check it out. With that being said, we also have a Patreon that is doing very well. Uh, we have accrued such a great little community. Uh, not to speak for you, Serge, but I, I love chatting with those folks uh, on, on our Discord. No, I hate chatting with those I know. folks. <laughs> yeah. no, they're a no. pleasure. They're awful. Yeah, no, they're great. Um, yeah, so signing up for as little as what? I think the lowest tier is like a dollar or is it? Uh, Two dollars. Two dollars, yep. For as little as two dollars, you sign up, you get access to our Discord, you get to ask us questions, engage with us on a on a as frequent basis as you'd like. It's a good time. Um, a lot of behind the scenes content too, like yeah. some of the videos we're doing here. Um, some great behind the scenes content for uh, Caleb's vampire uh, campaign. Some one-on-one -on -one sessions, a lot of good and stuff. And for Tales from the Loop, there's a bunch of cool stuff yes. there too. Yes, and Tales from the Loop, which was absolutely phenomenal. Great job and shout out to Lev on that one. For those of you who are here, uh, it's probably because you've seen the yellow sign. Uh, or maybe your case officer has brought you to us, but I want you to tune in, buckle up, because regardless, you have found The Dead Drop, a guide to running impossible landscapes. Vince, in our first episode, you laid out for us what to expect, how to prepare to run this campaign, but today we are waiting till the sun sets and venturing up into the night floors with you. Yes. We're discussing for this episode everything a handler needs to know about prepping and running the first chapter of Impossible Landscapes, otherwise known as the Night Floors. Now, to help generate questions for Vince from the perspective of a, uh, a handler new to this campaign, I am reading along for the first time. So I just finished reading the scenario, and I do have to say I already love it. It's full of intrigue, paranoia, thrills, everything you want out of a Delta Green scenario, let alone a campaign. So it's really a great way to start uh, this story. Now, for those of you watching, if you have questions about the campaign, please submit them to us and we will try to answer them in the next episode. Yes. We've already got some great questions from our patrons, which we will be reading and replying to in the appropriate episodes. Uh, you can reply in the comments of this video. You can DM us. If you want, you could join our Patreon and talk to us in the Discord. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, however you like. Uh, but finally, as a warning, there are some big-time spoilers for this campaign ahead. So if you are a player in an Impossible Landscapes campaign, you need to go somewhere else. But if you are interested in running or currently running this campaign, welcome. Okay, so now that we've got all the business out of the way, let's get to it. Absolutely. Vince, set us up. What is the premise for the Night Floors and what can we expect? So just some background. Way back in the day, before we had an Impossible Landscapes campaign to even discuss, before Delta Green came out with its own version and it was still a supplement for Call of Cthulhu, uh, the Night Floors was a standalone scenario. Uh, there was no uh, follow-up, there was no continuation of the story, it was very much its own scenario. But uh, for this campaign, as part of Impossible Landscapes, it is very much a 
a brutal, surreal, uh, terrifying introduction to what you can expect for the whole of the campaign and really a way to hook the players in early and get them invested and kind of set up a lot of the dominoes that will fall throughout the course of the rest of the campaign. We start off in the summer of 1995, in August specifically, in New York City. Uh, the agents or the players will take on the role of agents assigned to M-Cell. Uh, the thing to note is that this is considered a, uh, a outlaws campaign when we move to the modern era, but it starts off obviously in the cowboy area of Delta Green. So we're still in that cell-based conspiracy um, kind of setup. I, I like that they chose the the outlaws instead of uh, focusing on the program. Yeah, so there's a very specific reason for that. Um, and okay. a lot of it has to do with uh, essentially a lack of institutional knowledge or uh, regarding uh, the king in yellow, uh, the yellow sign, all that good stuff. Um, yeah, I remember reading that uh, in the opening pages of uh, this campaign that the program does not have as much operational knowledge. Uh, that's what the static protocol is all about. Yes. The static protocol is more related to uh, the the outlaws and in this uh, in in this instance the cowboys. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's why what I meant to say is like the cowboys and the outlaws have that institutional knowledge, whereas the program does not. So right. that's where that's where it defers. Um, but yeah, long story short, the players and the agents of MCEL are, are summoned to New York City uh, to meet with their uh, case officer, Agent Marcus, in uh, Washington Square Park in New York City. And while there, they are given the task of looking into the disappearance of a local artist named Abigail Wright. The whole thing that brought the uh, her disappearance to Delta Green's attention was, according to Agent Markets, the appearance of a, uh, a an occult symbol associated with uh, with the unnatural. And so the players are given the task of essentially going and and looking into the disappearance of Abigail, determining if there's a, some kind of unnatural vector or incursion, and of course containing it, destroying it, neutralizing it, what have you. Um, uh, a, a classic start to any Delta Green campaign. Yeah. What's what's the next step after that? They, they've been given the briefing. Yep. So the bulk of their introduction to the world of the King in Yellow comes as a result of looking into Abigail's apartment. So Abigail lives in a building known as the McAllister Building in the Kipps Bay neighborhood of Manhattan. Uh, and it sort of functions like an artist co-op. It's, it's a low rent sort of uh, area where uh, various local artists can live on the cheap and, and you know, devote themselves to their to their their art there's a lot of other little things that start cropping up with the other tenants of course that, that we'll get into um since we're we, <laughs> this abigail Wright thing is really just scratching the surface um, <laughs> it's it's really not even all that the players can expect to encounter so would you expect that usually players the first thing they'll do is go to abigail's uh apartment yeah so that's that's the big hook is um they are there under the guise of um federal agents brought in to further look into the disappearance uh, and the whole thing that necessitates the FBI's involvement, or at least provides a good cover, is that um, Abigail's credit card 
was found in some trash outside the McAllister building. Homeless woman picked it up, sold it for drugs, and it ended up in Maryland. And so that was the nexus for a possible interstate kidnapping, which is how the FBI was able to get involved. And of course, that that makes it easier for Delta Green to, to poke its head in. Right. Uh, but regardless, one of the big components of this is that the agents are tasked to go and essentially inventory the contents of Abigail's apartment since she has set up some sort of strange shrine art project. No one really knows how to describe it. The way I've always sold it to my players is that it, it is it is a, um, a manifestation of reverence and a, a shrine to unbridled, unrestrained creativity. Pretty, pretty good description. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so they'll go and they'll meet with um, their NYPD point of contact, Detective Giordanda, who is essentially just there to give them keys uh, and let them in. He doesn't really have a whole lot of information beyond what the players have already gotten from Agent Marcus. But if you happen to lose a player along the way or lose an agent due to you know poor dice rolls and everything else that may happen, he's a great avenue to have like as a backup character. And, and, and what's really great about the scenario as I read it is they really made sure to point out all the other possible NPCs that would also make good players in, or, or good uh, PCs in case you lose one along the way. I, I appreciated that about the scenario uh, layout. Yeah, same. It, it really, it helped a lot because I lost two players in my playthrough or two agents in my playthrough. So having r not necessarily ready-made uh, NPCs ready to, to kind of step into, but it, it definitely helped with kind of keeping the ball rolling with the with the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so essentially the players go in and they inventory the contents of Abigail's apartment. And that's where a great deal of those proverbial dominoes I mentioned are set up that end up popping up in other parts of the campaign. Um, gotcha. It's a uh, lot. Not, yeah, not only the clues, but also it seems like um, a big way that the, the narrative continues is that the more time they spend cataloging this, the closer and closer to the night floors they get, uh, even gaining corruption and stuff after a certain amount of time, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so the more they dig in and the more they kind of devote themselves, obviously, the, the more corruption they're going to rack up. Um, and then, of course, the longer they spend in the room itself, there are various effects they could fall under based on uh, there's a, even a table in the uh, in the campaign book for what to happen based on how much time they spend in there, whether it's alone yeah. or with others, typically alone. So would you say then that it's about, do you front load the things they see with these clues in particular, or do you do th throw in a couple of random nonsensical things just to break it up? So for me, I front load, I front load the ones I absolutely want them to find. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so for me, it was really the diagrams, the letterhead with the map for the, the whisper labyrinth. And then, um, those, those are really the main two. Everything else is kind of a bonus. Yeah. Um, because I, I had a feeling that once they, you know, caught wind of something else being in the building, um, you know, the microphone, that those were leads that they could potentially, you know, be pulled down and focus right. on. So, it, yeah, it, it definitely take the opportunity to front load. Because the whole thing to remember also is that uh, by the time they reach Abigail's apartment, it's, it's pushing mid to late afternoon. So they only have a few hours of, of daylight left. And, and your players may very well get to the point where it's like, okay, we're going to call it a night. And that's typically when, you know, for me, I would call for like an alertness or a search roll to like spot the microphone wire. Um, and then from there, it's it's kind of off to the races. 
Gotcha. So so you're saying the yellow sign is not a big deal if they see it in the beginning because it's going to come up, I assume, multiple times. Oh, yeah, 100%. Right. So, okay, so let's talk about the microphone. So you're saying, you know, before they're about to leave or if somebody asks for, uh, let, let me search the room, let me toss the apartment beyond these trinkets they find a little microphone in the carpet. Yep, so they notice, so all the carpet and rugs have been pulled up from the floor in, in Abigail's apartment, but what they notice is that there is the butt of a microphone sticking out from under the door, and when they open the door, they see that the wire leads under the carpet in the hallway. And if they are to follow it, it leads to the apartment of another tenant named Thomas Manuel. Have you always interpreted it as um, Abigail being paranoid at a certain point and like tearing up the rugs because she thought she was being listened to or w what was the the reasoning for Abigail to do that that's a good question if she did it yeah so I always interpreted it as a means to get access to more surfaces for which she can attach things I see I see that makes sense that makes yeah. total sense yeah okay yeah because she got rid of all furniture like it's it, there's shit on the ceilings, there's shit on the carpet, there or on the floor, the walls, it's everywhere. So gotcha. That's kind of how I how I interpreted that. So when they find this microphone, it's obvious to assume the first person they're going to interact with is uh, I forget his name. Lewis is his name. Thomas Manuel. Thomas Manuel. I was completely and totally off. But there good. we go. Thomas Manuel. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of tenants. It, it, just real quick, if you were to cast this in a movie, who do you think Thomas Manuel reminds oh, you of? His personality, shit. stuff like that. Um, uh, just to throw it out there, because I was thinking about it. You know, I I like John Leguizamo, maybe a '90s version of John Leguizamo. Dude, that's the first one that came to mind. That's oh, that's funny. First one, just because Leguizamo's funny, he's charismatic, but he can also be not very trustworthy. And I assume the players are going to immediately think this guy's up to something. Oh, 100 percent. Like, hey, we've got a missing person, and you've got a microphone sticking out from under our door. Like, yeah, dude, you're you've just made the suspect list. <laughs> yeah, I guess this is now the time to talk about how each tenant that our players can explore have two versions of themselves, a yes. day and a night version. Why is this and, and, and what is Thomas like during the day versus night? Man, great. This is this is really where we start getting into the weeds on, on some of the finer details. So like my first recommendation to handlers running this is consolidate all the information like in, in whatever note format you decide to take. So make sure you've got one page dedicated to Thomas divided into night and day. So you've got a quick reference right there. And you're not having to flip through multiple pages to get everything because there is a lot of information scattered in different sections. And so yeah. it's helpful to get it all compiled in one spot. Um, do that for all the tenants that come up because each one not only has two different versions, but there's a lot of information to go through, especially if you've got uh, players who actually, you know, do the agent thing and start looking into these people. Yeah. So then there is Roger Karoon. Karen, how do you pronounce his name? I, I pronounced it Karoon. Okay. Um, he's a science fiction author who's written some some pretty, you know, uh, in, the, in the universe, big name, uh, big name books, moderate, moderately successful. But by day, he's kind of unassuming. He's homely, obsessed with neat fit, you know, with neatness, um, kind of just you know, a typical, like, eccentric shut-in author yeah. type. Yeah. Um, again, the the common thread is by day, nobody's going to have anything of value, which is okay. which is why the NYPD and the FBI's inquiry is kind of dead-ended, because nobody knows anything and nobody's seen anything. And that's pretty much, you know, the name of the game. So, um, so really, the, 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 the daytime investigation should just be filled with eccentric characters, interesting characters, but ultimately ignorant characters that don't have any information. Absolutely, yeah. The, the way to... The, the way to kind of look at it is that 
their knowledge of the night floors and what really happened with Abigail is not unlocked until the sun goes down. And then they recall. And then, like, that's when the corruption that they've, you know, endured from the King in Yellow and and his presence has, it really kind of takes hold. Gotcha. So, yeah. Um, At night, Typically, so at night, I've he's up in the night floors hanging out with Mark Rourke uh, in the smoking lounge, smoking and drinking. Um, he always reeks of cigars and brandy. Uh, it, you know, if he's asked about Laura right after dark, he claims that she never left. Uh, he acts confused if the agents, you know, confront him about her disappearance, and he says that she lives on six, the sixth right. floor in apartment twelve A. Yeah, if he's asked about the night floors, it's like, oh, it's always been this way. Uh, everyone knows it. Um, All right. So Roger sounds interesting. Then there's uh, his editor who will just give you more clues about him uh, not doing his job. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So there's there's other like little leads the players could follow up on, like for Thomas Manuel is its, par- its parents for Roger. It's his editor. And then we've got uh, we've got Michelle Van Fitz, who at night probably presents the most clear and present threat to the players. Mm. Um probably the only one that they can reasonably expect to engage in combat with um, depending on how things on the night floors go. Sure, sure. But she's uh, she's kind of like your typical hippy-dippy anti-establishment type, you know, in the 1990s. Um, she's a, a feminist author, a real firebrand, withdrawn and dire are the words. Seems to be all but all she wants to talk about is her, her writings and just feminism, uh, you know, theory in general. Absolutely. Yeah, fuck the pigs. Uh, ACAB, <laughs> you know, doesn't want to cooperate. Uh, it just... She- yeah. She kind of reminds me of a younger log lady. There is the uh, the actress's name. Yes. Is, I wrote it down here. Uh, Catherine Coulson, the log lady from Twin Peaks. Uh, it kind of gives me that vibe. Yeah. And if, if I had to cast her, I'd probably cast like a young Janine Garofalo as her. Oh, that's good. As her type. Yeah. That That's that's the one that came to mind for me. That might even be a better one. I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just just a real kind of fuck you attitude, which is which is it, it's fun to play with as a handler. Um, right. Right. So by day, of course, totally uncooperative, totally unhelpful. Uh, by night, what's crazy is that if the players see her apartment by day and then her apartment by night, it's clear that her apartment has expanded in size, impossibly, mm. um, yeah. at night. There's um, you know, a, a mahogany room full of books and tables and couches that leads directly to the night floors itself. Um, there's you know, tables and shelves holding you know, crystal tumblers, cigars, uh, cigarettes as if like a party had just wrapped up. Um, there's no one in there, but you can hear sounds of like conversations and like, you know, partying just, just out of sight. Yeah. Uh, which is a cool little, just like atmospheric thing. I like to, you know, that that's pretty neat. Um, the one thing with her is that she will uh, attack the agents. If she thinks she's going to be taken into custody, she has an antique tomahawk with her. (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, she she will attack the agents if she feels. Now, yeah, if she feels like she's going to be taken into custody, I guess obviously threatened as well. What what might that situation look like? Like if if they are being real aggressive with her, like how is your apartment able to be you know this impossibly large? What about if they try to venture further into her apartment into the night floors? Would she attack them then or no? So the way the book describes it is if she if she thinks she'll be taken into custody. Um, if she thinks that the agents have stolen any of the books that she has in her apartment, or if she thinks that they are going to impede the progress of the night floors. So I think exploration in and of itself is not necessarily a trigger for that, but if she thinks the agents pose some kind of threat, 
So again, if they have this really like aggressive demeanor with her and then they're like, we're gonna go check this shit out because we gotta contain this or neutralize it or whatever. And if they say that with oh. an earshot, I think that'll trigger that defensive, you know, mechanism. Oh, yeah. I believe there's two other or one other uh, uh, attendant. Yeah, that's Lewis Post. Um, he's another artist type. Um, his uh, He's got a dumpy ass apartment. Uh, very sloppy, of course, during the day has nothing to add. Um, he, he, he's polite and he's kind of funny. So like play him up as kind of like a more a more friendly and affable kind of type versus like an eccentric or an uncooperative type. Mm-hmm. Um, but at night, he, uh, he doesn't have much to say about Abigail other than he heard that she moved in with someone from quote unquote upstairs. Um, he does have a mirror that he keeps under his bed that he uses to, you know, his inspiration for when he does his art that you oh, could, you know, it's more uh, creepy, you know, creep factor. Like, you know, you is there forces. something specifically that happens with the mirror that you can play with? Um, potentially, yes. Yeah. So I know for like, if you look in the mirror for more than 10 minutes, uh, the reflection of a vague figure is seen, disappears uh, and looked at directly. Um, it, it's essentially like they're, they, they're dancing and it's going to add corruption. It's going to add gotcha. result in the sanity loss. The big thing is that he, you know, he's, he's got a sketchbook filled with images of, of, dr- of drowned children. There's the, the oh, angle to Ace of Darabondi. Gotcha. Um, what's crazy, though, is that you can actually, the, if the agents like mess with his drawings, they can, especially representations of the drowning room in the Hotel Brattleben, if they draw like a gun in there, when they eventually find the drowning room, if they do, the gun will be there. So they can actually directly influence uh, what they find. Uh, Post does, it can be a threat. He, I think he does pull out a knife at some point if he's threatened. Um, yeah, if Post uh, finds the agents in his room at night, he will ruthlessly attack with a steak knife he keeps in his pocket. Gotcha. All right, cool. So we've uh, covered Lewis. He has uh, an agent, which might give you more information. Yep. Um, you know, obviously at this point, really the only thing left for the agents to do is to venture up to the fourth floor and see what's waiting for them. That's it. Yep, absolutely. And that's when, <laughs> that's when shit gets wild, uh, <laughs> as if it hasn't already. Um, so the first, if they do decide to take the stairs, um, there are stairs that lead up to the roof during the day. Um, you know, and so if they go up there during the day, they're just going to walk out onto a normal roof. Perfectly plain, perfectly simple, nothing to find, nothing suspicious. But at night, when they go up, they enter into the smoking lounge. And that's where, um, you know, I'll, I'll kick in the music cue, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, so it just really kind of um, starts screwing with them a little bit. But with the smoking lounge, there is... Um, you know, it, it's set up exactly like it sounds. There's like a bar cart, there's cigars, um, there's uh, floor to ceiling bookcases, and then there's Mark Rourke, who's the first like night, like true night floor resident that they meet. Um, he's kind of like stuck in the 1920s, 1930s, uses all the slang of the era. Um, you know, I, I'd be sure to, one thing I did was I, uh, I looked up 1930s slang to try to incorporate into- Got to. Yeah. how he talked yeah. and then also look up some 1930s facts in case the agents ask some off the wall shit like who's the president um that's so a like, great idea yeah so like you know who's the, who's the president uh, franklin delano roosevelt who the fuck you think it is like you know right, like, uh, right so yeah he's got some he's got some general information and i've used him as an avenue to provide additional information on the other tenants like the other people that come up and hang out um but really from there it's it's more about getting the players to explore the night floors themselves 
so going further past the smoking room. Going further in, yeah. Now, is it is it every new space is a, is heading upstairs, or are can you set it up where there are other rooms and things on the same floor as the smoking lounge? Yeah, so the way I, I really do have it set up to where, or at least in my playthrough, I had it set up to where it is very much structured like a hotel or like an apartment building. There's mm-hmm. you know multiple apartments on each floor, multiple hallways. It's easy to get lost. And then, of course, stairs leading up and down. The Where the difficulty cut comes into play is that in order to successfully navigate the night floors and make your way back to the smoking lounge to leave, the players have to fail sanity rolls. I um, see. So, so once they leave the smoking lounge, if they turn around, it's gone. It's gone. Kind of a thing. Okay. Yep, it's gone. They they are suddenly, you know, they found they've they've wandered down hallways that they didn't even know they were walking down and they're no longer inside of the smoking lounge. Gotcha. Uh, we've got the author who is JC Linz, but he is never seen. He's kind of a mystery. If they find the room, they'll find like the typewriter, they'll, uh, which is a 1929 Remington Remet, you know, where he's working on the play. So that's right. But that's an area where they don't necessarily meet or interact with this individual. Now, I remember you saying JCL, JL were initials that come up a lot. Yes. Uh, JL, I am assuming, it, now is it the same person, Linz, that ends up writing the King in Yellow, you know, to start this whole recursive thing? It is. Yep. I see. So eventually we will come up, to, we will meet Linz again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, gotcha. the Eventually the whole point of the, of the campaign is to... Uh, find JC Linz's soul bottle, which we'll we'll talk about in future future episodes, and return it to him, and that will be the impetus for him to begin writing the King in Yellow. Gotcha. Yeah, I would definitely find ways to feature either those initials or the the author himself in some way uh, uh, as soon as possible to lay those seeds. Yeah, without a doubt. The, the big one for me that I, I spent a lot of time on was the night manager. So uh, Henry De, de Calvados Castaigne, who is the, the night, the, the, you know, known as the night manager and is essentially the, for all intents and purposes, the manager of the night floor, okay. uh, the night floors. Uh, he works directly for who he calls the superintendent, which is a euphemism for the king in yellow. Right. So for him, I used him as, a, as an avenue to really just talk about, you know, the superintendent himself, give more information on what happened with Abigail. You know, she lives on the sixth floor with the salesman, confirming what all the other tenants have said. He does not know much about them except they're quiet, they pay in cash, and he says the other tenants probably know a lot more. A lot of the areas that will get seated with him is is really like, you know, the nature of the uh, the nature of the superintendent. And, you know, okay. accessing the night floors and like, hey, can we move in or, you know, how do you get? And it's all about playing up the fact that the superintendent decides who gets to, who gets to stay and who gets to live there. So the night manager is kind of a, a source of authority where if they feel like they need to ask somebody who's in charge questions, they might go to him. Yep. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. So the night manager, obviously important. The superintendent, we can assume, is the king in yellow. Oh, yeah. Um, a- a- anything vital to know about that? Or is that, you know, obviously going to come up in a later time? Yeah. If the if the players ask, well, hey, can we meet the superintendent? He'll say the superintendent it lives upstairs and is having a party tonight. And he has a party every night. So, gotcha. which is, you know, Carcosa. <laughs> so. hey. Is there a limit in those first early sessions how high up into the night floors they can go? Or uh... So, yeah, I, I the way I had it set up, and it's never really uh, kind of limited in the book, but the way I had it set up was that you could go as far up as you seemingly want. What's 
but you don't know how far up you actually are. Like, have you really oh. gone anywhere? Are you just, you know, moving up a floor when you think you've been moving up several? How far up does this go? Like, so if they decide they want to keep going up the stairs until they reach the top, they're going to keep walking is the way gotcha. I had it. So. Well, what if they wanted to stop at uh, 12A on a part in on floor six? Would they be able to reach Abigail's apart new apartment or would you kind of uh, throw them a loop? I would, uh, you could play it either way. Like I would throw them a loop. Uh, I would throw them in a loop and it also depends on if they manage to succeed or fail those sanity rolls to navigate. Uh, if they're trying to go someplace specific. I guess Otherwise, that's a big mechanic that needs to be reminded is that if they are trying to move to different floors or different sections, they have to keep making those sanity rolls. Right. Yep. And failure is a success. Failure is a, it's a right. success. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, 100%. That, that is, and if they decide to, to check the apartment, I, I can't recall. I think you can find it, but there's nothing in there. Like nobody's right. around. Yeah. In case you don't see the sign in the earlier parts of the scenario, it does seem like there is a, a moment where you can find a small piece of paper with the yellow sign on it. Can we talk a little bit about the yellow sign and how it works uh, yes. kind of mechanically? Absolutely. Um, so with the yellow sign itself is seeing it will cost you zero uh, if you succeed, 1d4 if you fail from helplessness. Uh, the first time you see it. If you lose sanity from seeing it, you gain one corruption gotcha. and you become compelled to share it. So you've got to like spread it. You've got to keep sh uh, sharing it with others. If you don't, I believe you can't sleep. Uh, how would you handle that with players? Do you message them? Do you just say to them and you feel compelled to share it? I, I message them. I'm like, okay. you, your, your soul, you are, you are compelled at this point to share this symbol. Other people need to see it. Gotcha. Um, if it's the last thing they do, like they need to see it. And just to really just kind of push at that like strong urge, like you need to see this. And it makes sense as agents, you know, you want to share information with the other agents. So it's a completely innocent uh, or it can be played off as completely innocent. Absolutely. Yep. Um, if they attempt to sleep without having shared it, they suffer from nightmares and they, they essentially suffer the effects of sleep deprivation. Um, but once they share it, the compulsion ceases, they can sleep again, everything is back to normal. I see. Gotcha. Yep. Okay, good to know. G getting back to what we were saying just a, a, a moment earlier, all of this great stuff can happen on the night floors. They can go up as high as they want. The problem is, is that the scenario very clearly states, or at least it doesn't give us a very clear resolution maybe suggest some things, but nothing really stood out to me as like a solid idea. I'd love to talk to you about what would be a good way to resolve this, knowing that it's really just a, a precursor to the rest of the campaign. Yeah, it's, um, as we both know, players can be dogs with bones and <laughs> getting them to leave a loose end is next to impossible sometimes. Um, so after a certain point, you really got to beat them over the head with the fact that they are not finding Abigail. Abigail's gone. Um, doesn't matter how much time you spend in the night floors, like you're, you're, she is, she is no longer here. And, and, and how would you recommend doing that short of saying it? I mean, uh, of course we can always roll an intelligence roll and, th and then beat them over the head, but are there other indications with the NPCs, things they say, things like that? Yeah. Like for, for example, like you can use, uh, Henry Castain, the night manager, you can use the other tenants, especially at night, just saying, you know, she, she's no longer here. She's moved on. She's not upstairs. She's not anywhere. She's, you know, you'll find her when you're meant to like little uh, seeds like that. What I ended up doing was I like, cause 
with my players, they ended up becoming increasingly desperate, and that was coming through in how they were treating some of the other folks and how they were kind of running around the night floors. And so eventually I had Henry uh, Castain confront them and say, you know, you, 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 must, you have to leave now. Can't stay here. You've got to go. And then once they leave, um, the, the doors to the night floors are sealed to them. They can no longer come back. I see. Okay, so any other tidbits or things that maybe we haven't discussed that we think we need to go over about this scenario? I, man, I think I think we covered it. Um, if there, <laughs> yeah, we this was a good one. I think if uh, I'd be curious to see what questions the the, the community has. Um, yeah, I, I would like to know also from the community what was the what was the uh, players' interpretations of what was going on. Yes. You mentioned earlier a guy that walks by and kind of turns into a ghost. I wonder how long they wonder. Are is this some kind of ghost plane? You know, are these ghosts? You know, the the, the misinterpretation of what's going on. I, I'm very curious to hear what other folks what, what their experiences are in this absolutely that would be that would be cool that that that's a fun part of seeing how this turned out for other people well definitely folks if you have questions if you have comments if you have uh, funny anecdotes about running the scenario please let us know let us know in the comments or message us um i want to thank you vince for going over this this has been incredibly helpful as as railroady as some might might say that it is and you know if people are not satisfied with dead ends man i mean you just talk about creep factor and just an overall like great experience this is a great way to kick this campaign off yeah, it definitely has it in spades. So if you guys have enjoyed today's episode, make sure to like and subscribe. Uh, we are covering every chapter of this campaign, so you don't want to miss out. Um, if you haven't considered it yet, you should join our Patreon, because technically you will be missing out on all of the unedited versions of these videos, uh, which will have more detailed guides. We are showing maps. We're connecting the dots where maybe you wouldn't see in this free version. So definitely recommend you check out our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash MaydayRP, where at any patron level, you can get access to the full versions of these exclusive episodes. Uh, thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Be seeing you folks. <laughs>